Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. So far, uh, we've covered Hitler and hang gliders. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go check out the podcast because that's where we've been. If you're concerned about what I'm talking about, it is not some violent cult you wandered into today. So be not afraid. Uh, But we are today going to talk a little bit about handguns. So more on that in just a second. Um, We are in this series called Take Back Your Life. And uh, we started at the beginning of the new year. Uh, Really our intent over these weeks together is we're trying to have a conversation about how we can think right so that in turn we can live rightly. That like winning the war in our mind and understanding who God is and what it means for us to live in light of who God is, uh, throughout this whole series, we're saying that's really what it looks like for us to take back our life. That if we can get our minds right, if we can see things clearly, then our behavior and our actions will follow. And uh, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to root out some of the stuff we all pick up along the way, some of the dysfunction that maybe exists in our life, some of the the bad habits that maybe aren't healthy or or aren't productive, whether that's in our relationships or just like daily routines and that kind of stuff. Uh, We're trying to like root out these ways of thinking that can be toxic to us and then truly take back our life from the things that may try and keep us from living the life that God wants us to live. So Really quickly, uh, we're like at the midpoint in this series, uh, but I'll give you a quick recap in case you've forgotten like where we were, you're just hopping in. Uh, On week one, uh, we said that we all need a wake-up call and not like wake up and discover that it's snowing wake-up call, but a wake-up call like for our hearts and for our souls as it relates to our life. That uh, in week one, we said we all need to be awake and aware that we only have one life and, and that it's actually our job to guard that life, to keep ourselves and that if we're not careful we can actually let ourselves slip away from ourselves as most of us we said on week one uh, don't end up being bad it's not like we're evil people who want to do something god doesn't want to do but for many of us we do get busy and we get so busy just keeping the plate spinning and maybe so distracted along the way that we can look back and realize that our one life that we were gifted with has slipped away from us and so we want to make sure that that's not true of us that we're intentional that we're deliberate in how we live our lives and on week one we said specifically there's two things that we need to guard against we have to guard against giving in and we have to guard against giving up that it's easy to give in to the constant distractions that are happening around us and the constant voices telling us who we should be and where we should be and what we should be doing. Uh, But we said we have to guard against that. We have to guard against giving in to maybe the lies that we hear uh, about our worth and about our identity. And we said that we have to be careful to not give up our control, whether that's to something or to someone. And and it can be really tempting, again, as life gets heavy, as life gets difficult, to want to just like kind of numb out or tune out or turn off for a second, like chill out. Uh, But along the way, it can end up costing us this one life that we're meant to steward and that we're meant to carry. And at the very end of week one, uh, we acknowledge that life is hard and, and that following Jesus is hard. But even in the midst of difficult moments, God can bring beauty out of difficult things. And so that was week one. Uh, last week, we continued the conversation by shifting uh, to the idea of our sight, the way that we actually view things, the way that we view our lives and view the lives of others, the way that we view this world. And we said that what we see is a big deal because what we see shapes what we believe and what we believe shapes the way that we behave. So in that way, the way that you see the world really will shape the way that you live within the world because our perspective matters a whole lot. And and so 
as we wrapped up last week, we talked about these five areas of our lives. We kind of used the metaphor of the eye and these different eye-related uh, categories to talk about what it can look like for us to see rightly, that all of us face pressure in life. And you may or may not know this, but last week you said like a healthy eye actually is under a little bit of constant pressure. But what we said is that for us to manage the pressure outside of us in this world, we have to have a healthy pressure inside of us. We have to have an, an inner strength that comes from relating with and connecting with God regularly. We talked about the idea of trauma, that if you have like trauma that happens to your eye or really any part of your body, there's like the initial impact and then there's the lasting impact. And, and all of us have had traumatic experiences to one degree or another in our life. And what we said is that when we go through something traumatic, we really have a choice in front of us. We can stay bitter about it and, and just kind of stew on, on the difficult things that happen to us, or we can let God fit us with new lenses to change us because of our experience, but actually make us better and change our perspective. We talked about um, how we have to pay attention to our focus. And, and actually this week I met with a friend and he reminded me of this leadership principle. We didn't say this last week, but he talked about this uh, leadership principle from a guy named John Maxwell, uh, where he said, what you move towards, move towards you. That's kind of the idea of focus, that where you focus your attention, there you'll be, right? And you'll see it moving towards you along the way. We talked about the idea of dilation, like in our eyes, that's how much light we actually let in. And so for some of us, we said we need to establish new rhythms that intentionally allow us to live in the light of who God is and, and what he's taught us to do. And so for many of us, maybe that looks like going back to that regular quiet time in the morning or in the evening or actually reading and reflecting on scripture, or maybe just resting a little bit along the way. And then we wrap things up by talking about the idea of brilliance. And not brilliance like you're amazing, although you certainly are, but brilliance in terms of the brightness that we have in our life. We said that God doesn't want us to just have sight, but have dull, sunken, weary eyes. But God actually wants our eyes to have brilliance, for our lives to have this spark about them. And we said that life following Jesus is meant to be adventurously expectant, that we're constantly supposed to be wondering what God is going to do next and where he might lead us next. So back to handguns or rather fake handguns. Uh, as I was thinking about where I want us to go today, I remember this experience that I had about 10 years ago uh, when I had this opportunity to travel with some of my friends and actually play in, in this little worship band. So it was just a group of friends. Um, we actually were asked by our former student pastor who had moved to Michigan and was continuing to be a student pastor there. He asked us if we would be willing to like put a little band together and go up and play for his winter retreat. And so it was kind of a sweet gig for us, honestly, because we were just out of college, uh, all just kind of hanging around playing music. It was kind of fun that I played bass today because I actually played bass in that band and I don't normally do that anymore. So it's like a little throwback. But uh, we traveled up to Lake City, Michigan for this retreat for like five years in a row. And like I said, it was a great gig because they, we had like the sessions for the students in the morning where we would lead the worship and then they would do give a talk, kind of like what we're doing today. Uh, they would do that in the morning and in the evening, but all throughout the day, we got to do whatever we wanted. And we were up at this uh, Young Life camp, like I said, in Lake City, Michigan, uh, around wintertime. It's beautiful up there. We got to stay in what they called the Lumberjack Lodge, which was like tricked out Lumberjack Lodge, not like creepy hunting cabin Lumberjack Lodge. I mean, there were antlers everywhere, but it was beautiful. And they had uh, like big windows where you could look out and you could see the woods. There was a hot tub out there, so that was amazing. So we would just like have this kind of mini vacation alongside us getting to serve uh, these students. And so we were hanging out. Oh, and just to prove that we were there, um, I saw back on my Instagram account like 10 years ago, uh, all of the rooms had like fun little names. And this was before Ashley and I were even married. We were just engaged at this point. But I really appreciated that they put her in the rusty axe. <laughs> I let her know that she was the old battle axe. And that's probably not what you should do if you're like just about to get married. But that's the kind of guy I am. So anyway, we were hanging out at this retreat. And I remember it was the evening session 
the last night of this retreat. And uh, what they always did at this camp is they would do like a talent show for all the students where they could put together an act or do, do something just for fun. And then we did like a worship set at the end. So uh, we were all hanging out. I guess it was warm that year or I don't know. I remember we were hanging out outside uh, right behind the backstage. And the backstage had this like really big barn door that could swing open so you could kind of hear what was happening inside. So we were just hanging out out there, me and my friends, waiting uh, for our queue to go in and get set for that final worship set. And uh, we heard that there were some students and actually some counselors uh, at the camp together who were doing a skit as a part of their talent show. And it started out normal, started out fine, uh, whatever, we weren't really paying attention. And then I started to notice that like the volume of their voices was increasing and it kind of sounded like there was like some conflict happening. And I was trying to sort out like, is this real conflict or is this still a part of the skit? But it was just like kind of distracting as we were standing out there waiting. A and then it like, got really intense and it seemed like people were fighting and we're like, what in the world is going on? And then out of nowhere, I hear gunshots, like for real gunshots. I've heard them before, like it was, like it was a real gun. And, uh, and we're like, oh my gosh. And so what happens between me and uh, my three friends who were there is each of us did one of two things. Okay, two of my friends, they just booked it. Yeah, they were out of there. Like, they're like, I'm getting out of here. Uh, one of the guys has like a legitimate excuse because he had actually been around a shooting incident before and he's like, PTSD, I'm out of here. And, and so they took off. Uh, me and my best friend at the time had the opposite reaction. And some of you know where this is going. Like, we turned and we're instantly like, we got to get in there. And, and so I don't know why God wired me the way that he wired me and gave me the physical like structure that he gave me because I'm not the guy to do that, right? Like, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. I'm like, there's danger and I should go fix it. But I'm like, I don't have guns, right? Real guns, guns, guns. I was, I'm me. Like, so I'm like, just, but my brain does that. I'm like, we've got to get in there. Uh, Ashley was in there. My friend's fiance was in there at the time. We're just like, we've got to do something. So I book it to the door. I can remember as I'm opening the door being like, what am I doing? Like, <laughs> again, it's, not, this isn't my job. I'm not the right guy for the job. But anyway, we go in there to resolve your fears it was all part of the skit. Okay, I don't know why they roll the way they do in Michigan, apparently, but these counselors thought it would be a funny thing to, like, do a fake shooting around a bunch of students, and it was like a month after there had been a real shooting at a school, so it's like, this isn't really funny, guys. But anyway, they had blanks in a handgun, and they actually fired it, so it, like, was the real deal, just safe-ish, but terrifying to, like, the responsible semi-adult leaders that were in the band standing outside. Uh, but we booked it in there. Like I said, everything is okay, and it's their church, and it's their problem to sort out whatever they cost from that. Uh, but you know what like, the name is for that kind of reaction? People call it a fight or a flight response. Right? And, and all of us naturally land one way or another. And, and it's not good or bad. There's not one that's right or wrong. Some of us, when we have a moment of tension or of conflict, we naturally lean in. Right? We want to fight for things. We want to fight for what's right. We want to stand up. Others of us, we naturally shrink back, right? We're like, no, thank you. <laughs> you guys can work it out amongst yourselves. I'll be over here hiding. A and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes in life, we can live in fight or flight mode. Like sometimes in life, we can actually fall into patterns where we're constantly responding to the stuff of life, either by stewing on it, right? Constantly fighting it, staying bitter about it, or by avoiding it at all costs, by, by just staying away from any conflict and therefore staying away from any growth. And maybe that's the reason, if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I do need to take back my life, maybe that's the reason why. Maybe something has happened and it's developed this tendency in you to respond in one of these two ways, to either be extremely combative and bitter and like fighting all the time or avoiding and, and never moving forward because of it. 
This series is actually based on a little 40-day devotional study guide called Take Back Your Life by a pastor named Levi Lesko. And I was thumbing through that devotional guide this week, and he has this statement in it. He says, looks can be deceiving. You can look at something but not see what's there, and that means that sometimes we cannot trust what we see with the naked eye. And that's true with the things that we hear too, right? Like, I was outside of that retreat center and I was hearing things, and I was seeing things, and I made an assumption about what was happening, and I thought, we're in danger. Those kids are in danger. Like, we need to do something. And while it wasn't a big deal in this case that I misunderstood what was happening, it is a whole other thing if we lose sight and we lose focus on who our Heavenly Father is and on what His voice sounds like and who He's called us to be. There's this danger in our lives where if we get it wrong, we can end up living in a fight-or-flight kind of way as it relates to our spirituality as it relates to our faith journey. And and that's why I'm so glad that we're doing this series at the start of the year, uh, because really what we're trying to drive home isn't that taking back your life is all about your effort. This isn't like a grin and bear it kind of series or a white knuckle it series. That's tempting to do around this time of the year, right? We set goals and we think, man, if I was just a little more disciplined. But that's not what we're saying throughout this series. Really what we're saying is that taking back our life isn't so much about what we do as it is about having a right understanding about who God is and then living in light of who he is and how he designed life to work. So today, what I want to do is I want to actually talk through an encounter that's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. It's one of my favorite little stories in Scripture, but I think it's one of my favorite because it's really relatable to how many of us face life today in the midst of whatever conflicts or difficulties we may have. And to give you a little bit of background on Mark, uh, Mark is actually the shortest Gospel account, the shortest account of Jesus's life, and it uses the fastest and most active language, and I think that's why I like it, because like reading your Bible is good and all, but I like that it kind of like gets to the point, and it's active, and it's energizing, and it's engaging. Uh, Believe it or not, Mark is actually the very first account, the oldest account of Jesus's life that we have. Uh, When they bound it all up and put it in the Bible, uh, there's four Gospels, and they run in the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Mark is actually the oldest one. I don't know, they just shuffled the deck a little bit, I guess, but Mark is the oldest one, and it was written by one of those guys who has two first names uh, named John Mark, and eventually when they put it on paper, they decided to just drop the John, so it's the book of Mark. It was written by John Mark, and his mom uh, was a leader in the early church. Uh, She's actually talked about in the book of Acts, which kind of talks about the beginnings of the church, but John Mark wrote the account down, but the voice that the book of Mark is written in is actually the voice of the apostle Peter. Uh, Peter sat down with John Mark, and he told the story of Jesus from his perspective, and that's one reason why I think the language is so active, because if you know anything about Peter, who followed Jesus, Peter, in the fight-or-flight world, he was all fight all the time. Like, Peter was the guy who was always stepping in it and always saying things that he shouldn't say. He was always getting involved where he really had no business getting involved. He was just like a bull in a china shop. And I love that about Peter. And really, I love that, that Peter is included in this story because Peter was kind of clumsy in that way. Like, he would just barge in, and he would go places where he maybe didn't even belong. And then God eventually chose to put him in charge of leading the early church. And I think he did that uh, maybe to show us that really this whole thing isn't about how competent we are or how capable we are or that that stuff matters, but it may just be about how compassionate God is that he chooses to use us anyway, despite our shortcomings. But anyway, like I said, this book, it's really active. It, it really gets to the point quickly. And there's this running theme throughout it that's all about the goodness of God that shows up even when we miss out and even when we mess up. And I think one reason that that's the case is because Peter in his life actually did have a moment where he didn't fight. 
where he didn't stand up for what's right. And if you know anything about Peter, you know it happened uh, towards the end of Jesus' life. When Jesus is arrested, Peter suddenly goes into hiding, and he starts denying that he ever knew Jesus. He's denying not only his best friend, but ultimately his Lord and his Savior. And he had so much shame about this moment. But I think Peter knew better than anyone maybe that when it comes to taking back your life, that it's not about us doing it on our own, but that we actually need the grace of God to show up and, and to help us become the people that he wants us to be. So anyway, that's Mark. That's where we're picking things up. Uh, and this little story that we're going to pick up happens uh, towards the end of Jesus's life once again. It's recorded in Mark chapter 10, but I think there's dynamics that are at play in it that really show up in our lives today as well. So we'll pick it up, uh, verse 46. It says, then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. And when Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. So this is an important moment in the story of Jesus because Jesus is passing through the town of Jericho, which was a small town, while he's on his way to Jerusalem, which was the big city where everything was about to happen. Like if you've heard of Easter, that's where Jesus is heading. That's what happened at Jerusalem. And, and really this moment in Jericho, it's this transition moment in Mark's account of Jesus's life. I'll give you a little more Bible scholar nerdery for just a second. Uh, Bible scholars actually look at the book of Mark or the gospel of Mark and they kind of break it into two sections where there's these two major themes that Peter was getting at when he talked about what Jesus was like. And the first half, uh, basically the first 10 chapters or so, it's all about the compassion of Jesus. Mark has this account of all these stories uh, where Jesus loves people who otherwise would have been considered unlovable, where Jesus has compassion on the poor and the sick and the marginalized along the way. And uh, just for fun, I want you to learn a little bit of Greek today. Uh, so the language that this was written in was Greek, and uh, the actual word that we translate as compassion is this Greek word transliterated for us to be splagnizomai. That's fun, right? That's why you needed to learn it today. Uh, but like spagnizomai is a big deal as it relates to compassion because what it literally translates to in English is compassion from the gut. You can kind of even hear it in the way the word sounds, right? Like splach, it's ugh, it's like right there. Uh, but the reason it's a big deal that Jesus has compassion from the gut is it tells us that when Jesus was healing people, when he was like approaching sick people and, and caring for the marginalized and the oppressed and the overlooked, it, it means he wasn't doing it out of like this religious, pious, I'm supposed to do it compassion. But he wasn't doing it just so that he could like do the shallow bare minimum of what's required of me to be a good person. It, it was compassion that came from the gut. It was like in him and it had to get out of him. And so so Jesus, uh, through the whole first half of the Gospel of Mark, goes around and he's healing people and he's interacting with people that he ought not to be interacting with according to the religious law of the day. And, and it's this radical thing. And then the second half of Mark takes this shift and scholars say that it is about the passion of Jesus. Or maybe you've heard of the passion of the Christ. It's not the Mel Gibson movie, right? The rated R one that all the Christian kids could actually see. But uh, the passion of Jesus is really about Jesus' relentless focus on his mission on the reason that he was here on planet Earth. And there's this shift that happens about halfway through uh, the Gospel of Mark where Jesus suddenly starts talking about why he's here a lot more. And you see he gets this like resolve that he is heading to Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross, ultimately to sacrifice his life on behalf 
of his people, and he knew what was coming. And this story that we're looking at today happens right at the turn. It happens right at the shift between these two themes. And Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, but Jericho is like his last pit stop. And I don't know what you would do if you knew what Jesus knew, right? If you knew what you were heading to, that you were heading to your own arrest, your own violent death, uh, and you knew this was your last pit stop, I don't know what you would stop and do. Maybe like get a massage or something, right? At least have a decent meal somewhere. But Jesus, on his way to his own arrest, on his way to his own sacrifice, stops and he hears a blind man calling out. And that's so significant. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But what's happened is the crowd has heard that Jesus is coming. And they're not necessarily Jesus followers. They just like heard about the Facebook invite going around. And so they're like, hey, we'll like check it out. Nothing better to do on a Saturday. So this crowd is gathered in the street and sitting back towards the back, like off on the curb, is this beggar named Bartimaeus. And the reason Bartimaeus wasn't a part of the crowd is because in that day, people who had physical disabilities or, or afflictions, they weren't like included with the rest of the group. They were actually viewed as sinners in some capacity. The assumption was there must be some kind of hidden sin in their life that God is punishing them for, for them to have a physical disability and a physical affliction. And that's certainly not accurate or true, but it's the way that people thought in that day. And so, in fact, there's this encounter uh, in a different gospel where Jesus' disciples run into a different blind man, and they ask Jesus a question, like, hey, who sinned? Was it this guy's parents, or was it this guy? And it seems like an odd question from our perspective, but it was revealing the values of their culture in their day, that they just made this assumption that if someone had a disability, it was the result of some kind of sin along the way. So Bartimaeus is kept at a distance from the other people, but he hears Jesus is coming. And he has the courage to cry out to him. And the text says that he yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. And again, it's not that Bart didn't know who Jesus' dad was. Okay, he wasn't confused in this situation. But that phrase, son of David, it's actually packed full of meaning as well. Because when Bartimaeus was crying out, son of David, what he was saying is that he believed Jesus was actually the Jewish Messiah that Jesus was the promised king, the promised ruler, the redeemer, who was going to come back and who was going to save God's people. And he was the son of David because it was predicted and prophesied that the Savior would come from the line of King David. So when he's crying out, Jesus, son of David, he's basically saying, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say that you are. And really what he's saying is, I believe you're the only one who can help me in this situation. You're the only one who can save me. And remember, this was like at least a moderately religious crowd. Okay, like they're the people who gave up their Saturday afternoon to go hear the latest rabbi who's wandering down the street. So they're like at least a little curious about the things of God. And you would think that this would be the group of people that would make room for a guy like Bartimaeus, right? A guy crying out for help, a guy who's crying out for mercy. But they don't. Instead, what the crowd does is they turn to him and they say, hey, be quiet. And in fact, other translations say they rebuked Bartimaeus. And that's not a word we use all that often, but if you actually translate what that word means to rebuke, uh, in the original language, it's basically defined as commanding with the implication of a threat. And if you're a parent, you've done this, right? If you're a kid, you've been on the receiving end of this before. I do it to my dog right now a lot. Like this idea of rebuking or saying be quiet in the context of this, it's when you say things like, if you don't quit fussing, I'm going to give you something to fuss about, right? If, if you don't shut up, I'm going to shut you up. That's what they're doing. And again, I know we're in church and you all act like you don't do that, but maybe you're not quite as, or I'm not quite as redeemed as you yet, but like, I think we've all been there, right? We, we, all, we all have those moments. That's what the crowd's doing. This isn't just like a polite, shh, be quiet, Bartimaeus, Jesus is coming. No, it's like, hey, knock it off. Like, 
knock it off or I'll knock you off. That's what they're saying to Bartimaeus in this moment. And we don't know exactly why they did this. Uh, I think we could assume that maybe they were embarrassed. They were embarrassed that Bartimaeus was even there. I mean, Jericho is a small town and Jesus was a big deal at this point. Jesus is going to the big city of Jerusalem. And, and so they're all out on the street and they're probably like, Bartimaeus, like, you sound like a redneck. Get out of here. Like, you're not supposed to be here. Be quiet. Get out of there. Uh, but either way, for whatever reason, the religious people, the people he would think would be the ones who maybe would show some compassion or some mercy are actually the ones who let him down, who shame him, who push him back. The people that you thought would have your back actually let him down. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that, ever had an experience like that, where you were in a spot like Bartimaeus was. But the thing that was behind this interaction is this big little word of shame. The people were shaming Bartimaeus. They're like, be quiet. You don't belong here. Right? You shouldn't be out in public. Jesus doesn't want to see you. That was the implication of what they were saying. And we don't like talking about this part of our lives, right? But it's such a big deal. All of us, at some point along the way in life, we felt shame. We felt shame for something that we've done. And, and when we feel shame for the things that we've done, it's actually because we believe it says something about who we are. And uh, again, we don't like sharing shame stories, and I'm not going to like pass the mic around and ask you to share yours, but I'll go first because I've got a microphone, and I'll share a couple of mine. Uh, I can remember uh, really feeling a lot of shame after graduating high school with the way that my relationship with my high school girlfriend ended. And again, we don't have the popcorn out, so I'm not going to tell you the whole story or anything like that. Uh, but I just really felt bad about how I treated her in that moment, in hindsight, looking back, even just a few years removed. I realized, like, she kind of still wanted to be friends and kind of work through things. And I was just like, no, we're done, and, and kind of isolated her and ignored her. And uh, anyway, I'll spare you the gory details. But in hindsight, I was just like, man, that wasn't the person I want to be. That's not how I want to treat people. I and it even showed up again a few years after we had broken up. We were out of high school and we had this like band nerd reunion because we were both band nerds. And, and so we actually were in the same environment together. And I remember I, I approached her and I actually tried to apologize. I was like, hey, I, I want to try and do the right thing at this point. And, and I pulled her aside and I said I was sorry, but it, she was gracious, like she received it. But you know how sometimes you can just kind of still feel it? Like, no, this isn't really okay. I felt that in that moment and I had so much shame just about how that relationship had gone. Uh, Moving on from my high school dating career, um, I've actually had a, a moment of shame that showed up uh, in my career as a pastor, in, in my run in ministry, and uh, it happened, oh, I don't know, five or six years ago now at this point, uh, but it happened in this moment where uh, basically at the church that I was a part of, um, we had to let go of a couple of staff members, and I was actually on our leadership team at that time. Uh, it was kind of a remarkable thing. Uh, the guy who was leading our church at the time really believed in younger leaders, really believed in the next generation, and so he was crazy, and he invited a young guy like me to sit at the highest level of leadership in this church, and in so many ways, it fast-tracked my growth and development, uh, but I loved getting to be a part of that room and getting to talk about the big things while I still was kind of a little guy, and so uh, I was in that room, uh, but we were in this season where we had to let some people go, and basically the slack from them not being there ended up on my plate, so I ended up kind of functionally having like two or three different jobs. I remember I had my laptop out at the dinner table a lot, working and trying to figure stuff out. And, and it was just a lot happening. And, and it was in that season um, that one of, again, my mentors, a guy that I look up to a lot, I still hang out with quite a bit. In that season, he actually asked me to step off of the leadership team of that church. He asked me to step down at my title changed, which may not be a big deal to you, but for me, like I, I really identified with what I did at that point. And so it felt like lost to me. And they were just trying to make an adjustment so that I didn't like burn out because I had so much going on. But from my perspective, it was all about shame. 
from my perspective, I got kicked out of the room that I loved being in because I couldn't cut it, right? My, my plate was too high and I couldn't keep up with all of it. And what that ended up launching for me is the single least healthy season of my ministry that I've ever had. I had this year-long pity party, basically, <laughs> where I was kicked out of the room and I was just doing my job and Yes, it was for God, but I would still just show up and just kind of do the bare minimum. A- and then I would go home and I would pout about it and I would be mad and I would lick my wounds. A- and again, I don't know if you've ever done that at your job or anything like that, but it was just this really unhealthy season for me. And behind it was all this shame that made me feel like I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough to be in the room and I just lost my opportunity. I lost my, my chance to be there with my friends. Now there's a whole lot of unhealthy stuff in there that Hopefully we've unpacked since then. But my point in sharing that story is, I mean, hopefully you were good to your high school boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, Hopefully you love your career and you're in a good spot with it. But all of us have moments of shame in our story. All of us have moments like that 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 have shown up along the way. And it's so important for us to talk about that because shame can take your life like no other thing can. A sense of shame about who you are and where you are or what's in your past can hold you back like nothing else can. And, and here's why it's a big deal. There's actually a book that I read recently. Uh, it's called The Soul of Shame. And it's written by a guy who is a psychologist and he studies the brain, but he's also a Jesus follower. Uh, his name is Kurt Thompson. And, and in this book, he describes the impact that shame can actually have on our lives. And he says it this way. He says, it's common for people who are depressed to have a very different understanding of their past as well as their future compared to when they're well. Practice tends to make permanent. So if we tell ourselves using imagery and sensations as much as words that our life isn't going anywhere, we literally wire our brain to continue in that pattern of storytelling. It becomes an embodied reality and no amount of theological facts that state otherwise, apart from equally embodied action, will necessarily change the story's outcome. We can see that the facts of life are not immutable realities, but are as much a function of the story we tell ourselves on a moment to moment basis. Now look, I know his language was a little technical and heady at times in there, but what he's getting at is that the story we tell ourselves about ourselves actually shapes the reality that we experience in life. That we like form these pathways in our brain and and when we get in a spot where we just are down on ourselves, we're ashamed of ourselves, we're putting ourselves down, it actually shapes the way that we live. It it shapes what we experience along the way. Uh, Or maybe a simpler way to say it is why this is a big deal for us to talk about if we want to take back our life it's that shame can get us stuck. Shame can get us stuck. It can get us in that fight or flight response where we either are so ashamed of what we've done or where we've been that we just avoid it at all costs and therefore we never grow from it, we never move forward from whatever happened, or we ruminate on it and we're stuck in it and we're bitter over it and we fight everyone and it just spills out and it becomes toxic in every relationship, in every context. But we can get stuck and this is maybe a little bit of a sidebar But since we're talking about your life and and how God wants your life to actually look, here's what I want you to know. This is so important to get. It's that God will never use shame as a motivational tool in your life. God will never leverage shame to try and make you into something other than what you are. Uh, Unfortunately, Christians do that sometimes. Churches can do that sometimes. If you've ever been a part of an unhealthy church culture, unfortunately, that that can be what we talk about God being like, but that is not what God is actually like. That God will never use shame to try and motivate you to change on his behalf. Do you know who does do that? It's the person that Jesus described as the enemy of God. And we like to think about him as like the devil with his little red suit and cutesy cartoon figure and like little pitchfork, but he's way worse than that. 
Okay, I think we like to think of him like that so that we don't deal with how much worse he is because what he actually does, Jesus describes him as the father of all lies, that he's the deceiver. And one of his favorite things to do is show up at a point of pain in our lives, at a point of pain in our story, and to like just stir it up with a little bit of toxicity and to sell it to us as truth. And unfortunately, so many of us believe it. We believe the lie and we end up living in shame. And how many of us have given up on something that we really deeply believed in in life because we were so ashamed uh, from something somebody else heaped on us, from some lie that maybe we believed about ourselves? Here's another thing I want you to know as we're talking about this. It's that anyone who tells you to lower your expectations of God or, or, or to put a lid on the thing that you feel like God has called you to do, anyone who tells you to lower your expectations or put a lid on it is not a voice from God. That is not what God does, okay? And this is what I love about Bartimaeus, going back to our story, right? The crowd is like, get out of here, Bart. Like, nobody wants to see you, man. And, and here's what he does. Shame shows up and tries to silence him, but he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Like, like in the face of shame, Bartimaeus has the courage to risk it anyway. He has the courage to silence those other voices and to say, hey, Jesus, I need you right now. And Jesus' response is equally as important for him and for us. Because when Jesus heard him, he stopped. And he said, tell him to come here. And so they called the blind man. And cheer up, they said, come on, he's calling you. And, and remember the context. Jesus is on his way to Easter. And he functionally puts all that on pause for one blind beggar calling out for him. And he would do the same for you today. Right? I, I, honestly, if it's me, I'm like, sorry, man, I'm on a mission. I'll see you on the other side of the resurrection. We'll deal with it then. But, like, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus stops the whole operation, and he says, hey, bring that guy to me. Bring that guy who's calling out for me, because that's who God is. And, and can you imagine how embarrassed the crowd had to be? The, like, kind of religious people who were like, yay, Jesus, you're here. And get back to Bart. And he's like, hey, bring me Bart. <laughs> and they're like, oh, yeah, we were just going to get him. Right? Sorry, Jesus. Uh, but they go and get him, the same crowd that was just shushing him. And here's what Bartimaeus does. It says he threw aside his coat. He jumped up and he came to Jesus. Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And that question of Jesus's is so significant. I mean, it was significant for Bartimaeus, but I think it's significant for us today too. Bartimaeus is face to face with Jesus. And, and Jesus gets right there and he says, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And I know we don't see him right here with us right now, but Jesus is equally as accessible to you and to me right now. And he may be asking us the very same question. What do you want me to do for you? Thankfully, Bartimaeus knew. Okay, and it's not spelled out in scripture like this. This is like the book of Eric, and I'm just imagining maybe what it was like. But I, I can imagine Bartimaeus, we don't really know his full story. We don't know when he went blind or anything like that, but maybe, maybe he had a son, right? And, and before he went blind, he saw his son being born, and he, he would tell Jesus, Jesus, what I want you to do is I want you to let me see my little boy again, right? He's growing up so fast, and, and I want to I be a part of it. Maybe Bartimaeus was married, and he's like, Jesus, I want to see my wife smile again, right? I fell in love with her because of her smile, or that's what got my attention, and I haven't seen it for, for a decade now, or however long it's been. And he says, Jesus, either way, we know he says, I want to see. I'm blind, and I want to see. And here's how Jesus responds to that confession from Bartimaeus. Jesus says to him, go, for your faith has healed you. And instantly, the man could see. 
and he followed Jesus down the road. See, one thing that this shows us is that there is a different response we can have to shame and, and to conflict in our lives. There's a different option between fight or flight, and it's the choice of faith. It's the choice of faith to engage in the hard stuff, to face the shame, but to invite Jesus to meet us in the midst of it, to admit the thing that we need and the thing that we want. And, and it's tempting in this story to think, cool, it just all buttoned up, right? The blind guy could see, that's the moral of the story. But I think the most transformative part in the story isn't Bart's eyesight, it's the trajectory of his life. Because remember, he was an outcast. He was kept on the curb. He, he was pushed out. But the text says the man could see, and then he followed Jesus down the road. He went from being a nobody to being a part of the movement. He, he went from being an outcast to suddenly being along the sidelines. And some scholars ha have actually imagined at least that maybe Bartimaeus followed Jesus from Jericho onto Jerusalem. A and he was there when Jesus was crucified on his behalf. A and some actually believe that he's counted in some of the early leaders of the church in the books of, book of Acts. I it's this remarkable take back your life moment for Bart, right? <laughs> where, where all of a sudden he's a part of the story of God. And so as we wrap up, let me make this really practical for us. All of us have those moments of shame in our life. And if we're not careful, shame can be the loudest voice defining who we are and how we live. Shame can be the thing that's holding us back from moving forward into the future that God has for us. And so one thing we need to learn to do if we want to take back our life is we've got to learn how to silence shame. We've got to learn how to turn down the volume on that voice that tells you that you're not good enough, that your past will always hold you back, that you'll never have what it takes for God to use you in a significant way. Friends, that doesn't come from God. And are there voices that are keeping you down like that? Are, are there things that you replay in your head? Are you tied to a past that should no longer define you anymore? Here's what I know. It took courage for Bartimaeus to speak up. In, in the face of that seemingly angry crowd, like all of his shame right there personified, it took courage to say, Jesus, I need you anyway. And it takes courage for you and for me to face the shameful parts of our story as well. But the other thing that I know is that a risky faith is the most rewarding faith. A, a faith that's willing to risk it and open up, even in those most tender and difficult places, is the most rewarding kind of faith. It's a faith that will really reflect the kind of life your creator wants you to live, the kind that's open to him to move. And, and something I want to clarify as we're talking about this idea of shame uh, is there's two terms that sometimes get kind of lumped together, but they're actually different things, and that's guilt versus shame. So guilt, again, we've probably all felt that before too, but guilt is the bad feeling we have for the bad things that we've done, right? We do something wrong, we feel badly about it. Sometimes that's not a bad thing, right? Sometimes guilt is actually the thing that motivates us to apologize that moves us towards reconciliation. So, I mean, we don't wanna like overly carry guilt from our past, but sometimes guilt can be a useful thing. Shame, however, is when we feel bad because we believe that we are bad. And again, friends, God will never be the one to make you feel that way because God looks at you and God doesn't call you bad. God doesn't look at you and look at the worst thing that you've ever done. I instead, he says, hey, you bear my image, right? I made you in my likeness and I went to incredible lengths to be able to have a relationship with you. So guilt maybe shows up sometimes a and guilt maybe sometimes is the natural reaction, reaction and result of some of the mistakes that we've made, but shame should never be in our hearts if we're trying to follow Jesus. Shame is never the thing that should motivate us in life. So we've got to silence shame. But another thing we need to do 
is we've got to be ready to answer the question, what do you want me to do for you? Like, what would you say right now in this moment if Jesus, robe and all, walked in here (laughs) and sat down next to you and just goes, hey, what do you want me to do for you right now? What do you want me to do for you? Sometimes taking back your life means having the courage to clarify what you really need, what you really want, where God is really at, and having the courage to then actually ask for it. So maybe for you, you need to be ready to answer what do you want me f- to do for you? But either way, what we have to do if we want to move past shame and really take back our life is we have to have the courage to risk. We have to have the faith to risk. And really we have to have the faith to risk whatever the next step may be. It's not our job to know the full story, but we do need to have the courage and the faith to take the next step towards the next right thing. And man, I'm so glad that that's how the story of my like ministry shame moment went because what happened after that year uh, of really bad pastoring and ministering and just being in a funky spot, what happened at the tail end of that year is that same mentor and leader who asked me to step off of that leadership team, he actually said, hey, we've restructured staff, like we've balanced the load a little more. He said, will you come back onto that team and lead with us again? And not only that, but there's a new opportunity coming up. Uh, We feel like God is leading us to start this campus of our church in a little town called Peru, Indiana, and we want you to consider if you'll be the campus pastor. And thank God, I mean, I still felt it. Like I was coming off the tail end of the least healthy season of my leadership, and, and I felt the like, here we go again, right? What if I don't have what it takes? What if it, I, I like, it's gonna stack up my plate again, and look what happened last time. What if I get kicked out of that room again? I'm just gonna be done. Like I, I felt all of that. But thank God, with a lot of help along the way and a lot of guidance from other people, I was willing to take the risk and step out anyway, to silence shame, and and to step out and have the faith to risk it. Because if you don't know, you're like sitting in the result of that decision right now. Uh, This church took a long, windy journey to get there, but I'm so glad that we stepped out and we had the courage to start this place. And here's my question for you. Can you imagine what God might do if you were willing to silence the voice of shame in your life? if you were able to turn down the volume on that stuff that tells you you're not good enough and you don't have what it takes, if you would silence shame in your life and if you would actually have the courage to clarify what you need and what you want and where God might be moving in your life and then if you actually had the courage and the faith to take the next right step, can you imagine what God might want to do in you and through you this season? Let me pray for you to that end. God, this, uh, this topic is a big one, and it's a big one because shame is so deeply personal. I mean, it, it gets just in our heart and in our soul, and, and those moments can be so painful to revisit, but the truth is, if we want to live life the way that you designed it to be lived, shame can't be our motivator. And so, God, I pray for the person in the room today who's really feeling it, and maybe they won't even go there. Maybe they're on the, like, flight side of the fight or flight equation or, or whatever it may be. I pray for them, and I just, I ask that you would set them free from the voice of shame in their life that they would no longer believe that they are what they did or that they're bad because of what they went through. But God, just like you did for Bartimaeus, would you turn down the volume on shame in our lives? Would you give us the courage to clarify what it is that we want you to do, how we are asking you to show up, and then give us the faith to take the risk of taking the next step in that direction? God, I pray as a result of this that we would be set free from shame that holds us back and instead that we could live wholehearted, open lives towards you taking back our lives so that we can live them the way that you designed them to be. We pray and ask all of that in the powerful name of Jesus.
Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.